Hello and welcome to the Feck It Fun, Fabulous and Free Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast. I'm Helly and I'm here to provide regular bursts of information and inspiration, some neuroscience applicable to eating disorder recovery, perhaps a few rants, but otherwise lots of positivity with a bit of a Feck It attitude, some fun and a sprinkling of fabulousness to help everyone find freedom in recovery. Hello, hello, my lovely, lovely people out there who are listening to me talking about eating disorders and how to overcome one. You are fabulous and don't you forget it. And you can very much overcome this eating disorder and have a free life from it. I believe that. I believe that that is possible for you as it is for every person who has an eating disorder and who is wanting and willing to overcome it and is putting in the hard work to do so. But it is incredibly hard. It's not an easy process to go through and it takes time, determination, a lot of willpower, a lot of frustration, distress, difficult emotions. I'm really, really making it sound attractive here, aren't I? But okay, it's not easy, but it is possible. And all those really horrible side effects that you get from the recovery process, I believe they will be worth going through when you come out the other side and you are living a big and fabulous life. And of course, life is always going to have its ups and downs. But when you don't have an eating disorder any longer, the downs are that bit easier to tolerate. And so it very much will be worth it. I do believe that for you. I'm also just going to say that I'm recording this in the evening and we're coming up in the UK to something called Guy Fawkes Night. Now, if you don't know about Guy Fawkes Night because you're not from the UK, then Guy Fawkes Night is when us strange people in Britain decide to burn what we call a guy, which is a little man, on a bonfire and set off a load of fireworks. So... I'm not going to go into the history of Guy Fawkes Night for this podcast. That's probably a podcast in itself. And I'm sure that if you Google it, you'll probably find a podcast all about the history of Guy Fawkes Night. So go away and do that if you're really interested. At the end of the day, just to say there are fireworks going off tonight. So if you hear a lot of loud bangs in the background when I'm talking, then that's what it is. So today's episode then, what's today's episode about? Today's episode is about the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. And if you have a restrictive eating disorder, then you might already be familiar with the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. And if you aren't familiar with it, then you need to be. It is the single most important scientific experiment that has been undertaken into the effects on a person of semi-starvation and what happens when recovering from a semi-starved state. And this kind of experiment that they undertook won't ever be repeated for ethical reasons, but the results of the Minnesota starvation experiment, which was an experiment carried out during the Second World War, continues to educate and inform scientists and health professionals today, nearly 80 years after it was conducted, because of how important the results from it were and how much they really do educate us and inform us about what starvation does to a person. And you need to know this when you have a restrictive eating disorder, because when you have a restrictive eating disorder, you are in a state of energy deficit. You are in a state of semi-starvation, whether you believe that to be true for yourself or not. 
So this is the first episode of two episodes that I'm going to make about the Minnesota starvation experiment and what the experiment involved and some of the key findings from it. In the next episode, I'm going to talk about why the results from the Minnesota starvation experiment matter to people with restrictive eating disorders today and what the experiment teaches us. So one of my listeners recently asked me to talk about how to cope with weight gain and overcoming an eating disorder. And I was thinking about this and thinking, maybe I haven't talked enough about this in my podcast episodes. But I thought, you know what, a really critical first step in beginning to accept weight gain in recovery is to understand why it is so necessary. And knowing about the learnings from the Minnesota starvation experiment will help you with that. And so in future episodes, I'm also going to discuss set point theory and overshoot theory and why these scientific understandings about the optimal health requirements of a body are important. And perhaps understanding this will make it then that little bit easier to rationalise why you do need to accept and allow the weight gain in order to fully heal and emerge from the addicted state of energy deficit that a restrictive eating disorder will create. And just to say that the information I'm going to talk about in this episode is taken directly as well from my book, Addicted to Energy Deficit. So if you do want to know more about this topic or about all kinds of other topics about the neuroscience related to eating disorders, about some of the biology related to eating disorders and overcoming one, then please pick up a copy of Addicted to Energy Deficit, which you can pick up from any online book retailer around the world. So a restrictive eating disorder then puts your body into a state of energy deficit and in simpler terms is a state of semi-starvation. And that's true whether you look starved in a skin and bone emaciated sense or not. If your body weight is below the level that your brain recognises to be optimal for your health, then you are in a state of starvation. A semi-starved state occurs with a restrictive eating disorder when you are consistently eating restrictively compared to your body needs and or compensating for the energy that you do take in. So you don't have to be eating tiny, tiny amounts to be in a semi-starved state. You just need to be eating less than your body needs and holding your body below its optimal set point. So that is the other factor in why a restrictive eating disorder causes this semi-starved state, is that while your body stores of fat and lean tissues remain below the level that's optimal for your set point, you will remain in a state of semi-starvation. And it's for that reason that you need to know about the Minnesota starvation experiment. So the Minnesota starvation experiment was conducted during the Second World War between 1944 and 1945. And it was conducted by two doctors, one of whom was Ansel Keys, and the other one was Joseph Brocek. And the intention was to study the effects of dietary restriction and develop an understanding of how best to support people overcoming a starved state. And this information was needed at that time 
to improve understanding of how best to rehabilitate people during the post-war period who had been food-deprived or who had been prisoners of war. So for the experiment, 36 healthy young men were selected from 200 volunteers for the experiment. And these 36 young men were chosen because they were seen to be the most robust and physically healthy, mentally healthy of the 200 that they were selected from. And these young men were conscientious objectors to the war, and they ranged in age between 20 and 33. The initial experiment that these men went through was then made up of three phases. So first of all, they had what was called the three-month control period. And during this initial phase, the men were fed individualised amounts to maintain their ideal body weight. And their ideal body weight was also called their control weight. And that was pretty much the weight that the men were at when they came into the experiment. And so the average amount that each man was fed in that period to maintain their ideal body weight or their control weight was around 3,492 calories. Now, I should say here, yes, I am going to talk some calorie numbers in this episode, but I don't think there's anything that hopefully will be you might consider triggering in that. These numbers are critical to understand if you want to understand about the experiment and how it was conducted and the findings from it. So... If you really don't want to hear numbers, then switch off now and don't listen to any more. But yeah, I am going to be mentioning numbers a little bit during this episode. So then after that three-month control period, the men underwent what was called a six-month semi-starvation phase. And the aim of this phase was for each man to lose 25% of his ideal body weight. So the average intake for this phase was 1,570 calories, but the amount each individual man was fed was dependent on his individual rate of weight loss. So the men weren't all fed exactly the same amount. It was very much individualized for each man, how much weight he was losing and what he needed. The men were fed two meals a day and their meals were made up of mainly cabbage, potatoes and dark bread to mimic the typical foods consumed during European wartime diets. And then once they'd gone through that six-month semi-starvation phase, they had what was called the three-month rehabilitation phase. At this point, 32 of the original 36 men reached this final stage. And these 32 men were then divided into four groups. And each group was fed a controlled amount of either an additional 400, 800, 1200 or 1600 calories to the amount they had been fed in the semi-starvation phase. But after five weeks of refeeding the men at this level, the rate of improvement in them was actually a lot slower than the researchers had expected. And so the intake of the men was then reviewed again. And I'm going to talk about that a bit more later on in the episode. There was then a very, very final phase to the experiment, which wasn't part of the initial plan of the experiment. But after the first three phases were finished, 
the men were asked if they were willing to stay on. And so at the end of the experiment, 12 men volunteered to continue on for another two months to be observed. And so during that further two months, these men were able to eat without any restriction at all, but they were just to be observed and have their intake level monitored. So that was how the study was conducted. Now I'm going to talk about what the findings were from each stage of the experiment. So from the control period of the experiment, when each man was allowed to eat enough to maintain his ideal body weight, during that initial phase, the men were said to feel good. They were energised, they were engaged, they volunteered in local community projects, some of them were studying at the university, and they really took part in a variety of cultural activities in and around the city of Minnesota. And they were essentially healthy young men who were interested in life, they were engaged, they were social and active. But then as they entered the semi-starvation phase, which as you'll recall went on for six months, during the first few weeks of that semi-starvation phase, in which the men had their calories cut by around half the amount they had needed to maintain their control weight, initially they generally remained in good spirits and many were actually quite interested in their weight loss. But as time went on, the men developed some significant physical, psychological, social and cognitive symptoms. So physically, the men became increasingly weak. Now in 2002, 19 of the original men who took part in the study were interviewed about their experiences by researchers. And obviously these were elderly men now being interviewed about what they'd gone through during this post-war period. One of the men could remember not being able to open a department store door because he'd become so weak from hunger, from starvation during that period of being underfed. They also developed a decreased tolerance of the cold. Many complained of dizziness and vertigo. They were incredibly tired. Many suffered from hair loss, reduced coordination and ringing to their ears. The men also had a dramatic drop in their heart rate and blood pressure. Some of the men developed significant edema as well. And it was also found that their need to urinate increased and their digestive system slowed right down, giving them constipation and other stomach issues. They found that cuts and bruises healed more slowly and their sleep became very interrupted. And on top of all that, their sex drive and interest in relationships also disappeared. Before the semi-starvation phase, some of the men were involved in relationships, but during this experiment, as time went on, many just lost their interest in pursuing sexual relationships at all. Mentally, the men became increasingly irritable and impatient. Suddenly, little things their friends did that usually wouldn't bother them at all now made them really very upset and irritable. They became annoyed by the eating habits of other people and of each other as well. And over the three months, the men became increasingly withdrawn and introverted. The researchers also observed indifference and boredom among them. 
Some of the men pulled out of their university classes because they no longer had the motivation or mental energy to attend, and depression was also quite common among them. They started to neglect their personal hygiene, had difficulty making decisions, lost a lot of their sense of humour, and developed much more rigid thinking. And they increasingly found conversation with others difficult and pointless, and if they did go to the cinema, they found they could recognise comedy, but no longer felt compelled to laugh. For most of the men, food obsession also developed and eating in ritualised ways became their standard. Some of the men would eat very slowly to make the food last longer, while others would eat incredibly quickly. Licking of plates at the end of the meal also became the norm. And the men became very upset at the sight of food waste, and many reported dreaming about food. Some of the men would go to diners just to watch other people eating, while others would actively avoid having to see others eat when they couldn't. Some of the men also collected cookbooks, with one participant later reporting that during the study period, he collected over a hundred cookbooks. So in just six months of that experiment, he collected over 100 cookbooks. So for these men then, food became their main focus with one of the men later reporting that food became the most important, if not the only thing in his life. Reflecting that this also makes life pretty dull. And during the start of the semi-starvation phase, the men were allowed to freely drink water, tea and coffee. And that resulted in many of them being observed to drink coffee and tea obsessively to fill their stomach. When this obsessive drinking was noted, Keyes decided that this consumption needed to be limited, and so the men were restricted then to nine cups a day. They were also allowed to chew gum during this stage of the experiment, but this also dramatically increased to the point that one man, who was actually later removed from the experiment, was observed to chew up to 40 packs of gum a day. Over this period, the men reported trying to keep themselves distracted from their hunger as best they could. Some of them started to collect and hoard both food and non-food related items that they really didn't need, such as books or trinkets. And in the 2002 interviews, one of the men still couldn't make sense of the hoarding behaviour he experienced at the time, although that hoarding behaviour was very likely a part of the scarcity mindset that develops when you're also semi-starved And I've made a podcast episode about the scarcity mindset that you can get with an eating disorder, which you can go back and listen to if you haven't yet. Over time, the behaviour and psychological state of some of the men became more concerning. One man was chopping wood one day with an axe and cut off three of his fingers. Years later, when he was interviewed about this, he said, I admit to being crazy mixed up at the time. I'm not ready to say that I did it on purpose. I'm not ready to say that I didn't. Four men didn't complete the experiment. Of these, two were hospitalised during the semi-starvation phase for what were termed pre-psychotic symptoms. One man impulsively broke his diet repeatedly 
and began to go on minor shoplifting sprees, stealing sweets and trinkets that were all but worthless to him. He was seen to write voluminously and creatively, and he was admitted to a psychiatric ward after he developed a violent emotional outburst and threatened suicide. After being allowed to eat freely again, his mental state and behaviours quickly returned to normal. Another man stole food items and rooted in rubbish bins, and he was dropped from the experiment due to failure to lose weight. At this point, he ate huge amounts in a binge-like way, causing him to vomit, and he sought admission for psychiatric help after that. His symptoms also subsided after a few weeks, and he later denied experiencing any further psychiatric problems during his lifetime. Of the final two participants, not to remain to the end of the experiment, one had an episode of passing blood in his urine and was taken out of the experiment because of that, and his urine was reportedly cleared soon after he was eating normally again. And the final participant didn't lose weight at the rate that Keyes was hoping, and so Keyes suspected him of cheating, even though the man denied it. But because of Keyes' suspicions, that man's data was not included in the final results that were published. So I'm going to go on then to talk about the findings from the rehabilitation phase. And many men reported that the start of the rehabilitation phase was the most challenging part of the experiment. So this was the point that they were starting to be allowed to eat more food again. But they found this the most challenging part because they experienced no noticeable relief from the hunger despite now being given more food. Some of the men were also surprised when they initially lost weight in this refeeding stage, which was attributed to some loss of edema as they began to eat more. And ongoing feelings of weakness also frustrated the men as it took them longer to improve than they had hoped. But during this 12-week rehabilitation phase, the men were split into four groups, and as I said earlier, each group received a different increased number of calories to the level they had received during the semi-starvation phase. Now, the men weren't told which group they were in, and none of them thought themselves to be in the group receiving the highest amounts. The group receiving the smallest additional intake at this time only received an additional 400 calories a day to the amount they had been eating. But after five weeks, the rate of improvements in all the men was much slower than expected, although that was proportional to which group they were in and how much they were being fed. But at this point, Keyes and the research team increased the feeding amounts again by another 800 calories a day. So at this stage, each man was then being given an additional 1,200, 1,600, 2,000 or 2,400 calories a day to the amounts they'd been receiving during the starvation phase. And once they had that extra intake, it was finally found in there being slightly more noticeable rises in their weight, and more importantly, their mood also improved. And it was noted that levels of depression in the men were reducing in line with how much food they were now being given. At the end of the 12-week period of controlled refeeding, none of the men were back at their starting weight. On average, their weights were back to 36.7% of what had been lost, so after 12 weeks of refeeding, they'd only regained, what, just over a third of what they'd lost. 
and physically the men still felt a very long way from their pre-starvation levels of energy and strength. So as I said then, 12 men volunteered after this to stay on for what they called the unrestricted rehabilitation phase. So these 12 men stayed on to be observed and monitored over another eight weeks while now being allowed to eat completely unrestrictedly. Well, supposedly, we'll get to that bit in a minute. And as they entered this phase, these men described feeling a complete loss of control over their eating when they could eat freely and many then just started to eat abundantly. So they'd already been through 12 weeks of refeeding. They'd already gained over a third of their body weight back. But now, once they were told they could just go for it, they could just eat whatever they wanted. They could eat as much as they wanted now. Some of them really found themselves feeling out of control with how much they wanted to eat, and they did go for it. One of the men in the later interviews described a day when he'd eaten several large meals in town in a very short space of time and was then sick on the bus on the way back to the accommodation because his stomach couldn't cope with it. He said that he simply couldn't satisfy his craving for food despite a full stomach. Another man during this time had to be taken to hospital to have his stomach pumped as he'd eaten so much. In the first couple of weeks of the unrestricted rehabilitation phase, most of the men ate high amounts, with some eating up to 11,500 calories a day. Now, of course, these men were still being observed by Keyes and the researchers, and when Keyes and the researchers became alarmed to witness these seeming overeating behaviours, they did become concerned and they reintroduced some control over food access to these men in the week, but not at the weekends. And in doing this, they then noted a pattern of what they called weekend gorging, where the men were observed to eat 50 to 200% more food at the weekends than during the days of controlled refeeding in the week. So the impact of taking part in the Minnesota starvation experiment was much longer lasting on each individual man than the length that the study ran for. 19 of the men were interviewed when they were in their 80s about their experiences, and of these 10 reported that their food perceptions and perspectives were forever altered as a result of being part of this experiment. One man described the year following the experiment as a year-long cavity that needed to be filled and a year of eating excessively. In fact, eight months after the rehabilitation phase, around a third of the men were still reported to be eating large quantities of food. Some of the men also said that it was at least two years before they felt their body had fully recovered, returning to their previous strength and stamina. Body weight in the men was seen to peak around eight months into rehabilitation, and seven of the men reported being very concerned about the initial fat accumulation on their abdomen and buttocks, and that this had made them feel what they described as fat. They recalled that as they gained weight, it was initially distributed in different places to where they'd carried weight before the experiment, stating that they felt their thighs, buttocks and midsection all appeared fuller and their face fatter. Most of the men reported that it took around two years for their body weight to stabilise back to their pre-experiment weight range and distribution. But I think the important thing to really highlight here 
is that after those two years, it took two years for some men, it took less for others. For the majority of the men, their body weight did stabilize back to their pre-experiment weight range and distribution, which I think just proves that set point theory is real. But as I say, I'm going to make an episode about set point theory in future. The depression seen in all the men improved rapidly when they were eating freely again. And one man who reported a deep, dark depression during the experiment said that it improved during the rehabilitation phase and that he had no further psychiatric problems in his lifetime either. Now, the adult children of one of the men were interviewed recently, and they reported that their late father's relationship with food and his body was forever altered by his experiences in going through the experiment. They could recall him telling them that food deprivation was the hardest thing that could ever be inflicted on a person, creating a loss of any kind of life sustenance. And they also spoke about the fact that their father always had to have food close at hand so that he knew that it was there when he needed it for the rest of his lifetime. And I think it's really interesting as well that after the study, many of the men chose to enter into either charitable work that involved getting food to the starving or hungry. And a couple of them even had careers working with people who were deprived or hungry. There was just a sense within the men after the experiment of needing to support others who were starved because of their understanding and empathy for just how hard, how distressing, how horrible hunger is. These men went through a life-changing ordeal during the Minnesota starvation experiment. But when asked later if they would repeat it if they were asked to, all but one of them said that they would. So if you have a restrictive eating disorder and you are in a state of semi-starvation, then I'm sure that you can relate to a lot of the findings from the Minnesota starvation experiment. And these findings matter. They teach us so much about what starvation does to a person, eating disorder or not. And understanding this can help you to recognise that maybe some of your traits or the symptoms that you've put down to just being you are in fact symptoms of a starved body and brain. Symptoms that come from a restrictive eating disorder and being semi-starved as a result of restrictive eating disorder. So these learnings from the Minnesota starvation experiment should help you to recognise why you do need to eat more to find your way out of energy deficit and discover just how much will improve if you do that. Now, I know this has been a long episode about the Minnesota starvation experiment in which I've only just really touched on some of the facts and findings about the experiment. There's so much more I could have said, but you know I don't want to make excessively long episodes and you can go out and find that information if you're more interested in it. There's probably, well, there are definitely whole books written about the Minnesota starvation experiment. So in the second episode on this topic, which I will be hopefully putting out next week, I'm also going to relate some of the key findings of this experiment to restrictive eating disorders and the experiences of those with an eating disorder or in the process of overcoming one. So next episode, relating a lot of what I've spoken about in this episode to what you might be going through with an eating disorder. 
That's it for today then. I hope that's been helpful. I hope that's given you something to think about and to really think about what impact just being hungry, just being starving is having on your life and just how much insufficient food intake really does impact a life in so many ways, mentally, physically, psychologically, socially, sexually, every way that it can possibly impact somebody, it will impact And that's what's happening with an eating disorder in your case as well. So maybe use that as a motivation to eat. Go eat. Go grab a load of food. Enjoy it. Let yourself eat it because you can. If you want to know more about me, you'll find me on hellybarns.com and otherwise I'll speak to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Feck It Fun Fabulous and Free Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast. Don't forget, eating disorder recovery doesn't have to be boring and doesn't have to be serious. Now go and grab yourself some food and have a fabulous rest of the day.